Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Hi, welcome to Nature Biotechnology's First Rounders podcast. This is it. Welcome aboard. The guest today is Sir Greg Winter. He is the master at Trinity College. He was the founder at Cambridge Antibody Technology, otherwise known as CAT, the most successful and and probably famous UK biotech in its history. His research led to the um, first partially and then fully humanizing antibodies, which led to, I guess, most famously Humira, among many other therapeutic antibodies. Um, I say Sir Greg because he's been knighted. He was also named a commander of the British Empire, among other awards. Uh, and I did this one on the road. So I, I was going to be in London. I was hoping to meet him at our studio there, but he, quite frankly, didn't have time to make the travel. So I packed up my stuff and went to him. So that means I went to Cambridge University, found Trinity College. I entered the Great Gate. They let me into the Master's Lodge. Uh, you know, the, the, the staff of the place led me through up and down stairs and through these hallways, these huge rooms with high ceilings and art hanging everywhere, and to the sitting room where he and I had this conversation. Um, big windows behind us. Very gracious host. Thanks for letting me, well, into his residence. That's where he lives. Um, so thanks, Greg, for that. We talked about many things. We talked about growing up in West Africa, which, which he did. We talked about this vicious attack that happened seemingly at random to him, which incidentally led to a breakthrough in the lab. And of course, we talked about the UK biotech scene among other things. So, yeah, I think that's it. You're ready. Listen up. Here's your First Rounders podcast with Greg Winter. It forces me to shut up for about five minutes before I answer any question and then answer in monosyllables. Yeah. If I know, because then it's not relaxing. This should be, you should be relaxing, Kevin. This is not going to be one of those interviews. It's going to be pretty relaxing. Okay, all right. So, but can you first, I've, so I've not been to Cambridge before, and yeah. I certainly have not been in Trinity. And I just, can you tell me a little bit about the school? So, Trinity was founded in 1546, yeah. and it was founded by Henry VIII by a merger and acquisition process. So he took two existing colleges, one of them called King's Hall, mm-hmm. which was founded in 1317, and another one called Michael House, which was founded a bit later, and he put them together. And he added to that money, or let's say lands, taken from the monasteries. Mm -hmm. So in fact, this college has been going for nearly 700 years in some form. It's about the second oldest in Cambridge, if you go back to our first ancestor. 
And so it's yeah. like I was, I mean, this is mostly Wikipedia stuff that I looked up, but Lord Byron went here. Um, Niels Spohr went here. Isaac Newton went here. I mean, the, the list is quite uh, yeah. prestigious. It's, um, we've been very lucky in, in having um, some of the best um, academics and particularly best scientists um, come here. It probably may have had something to do with the fact that King's Hall was one of the best endowed colleges and Trinity College was also one of the best. Not necessarily the best, because King's, I think, at one stage was had an endowment more than that. Mm-hmm. But it was always a college which was reasonably well off and could do things properly. By that you mean it had the, it had the resources to do research, it had the resources to... I mean, those are the things that I would think would draw young minds. Uh, yes, um, I suppose it did. I don't know what drew Isaac Newton. Um, Isaac Newton was a poor scholar, uh, poor in the sense of not rich. Right. Um, and uh, I think there were some very nice people in Trinity who looked after them. The master of the college, Isaac Barrow, um, was professor of mathematics and noting Newton's poverty he stepped down from his post in mathematics to allow Newton to take the chair. I did not know that. It's quite astonishing. Yeah, it's a great story. So can you tell me where you were where you were born? I was born in England. I was born in Leicester, but shortly after that I went to West Africa um, with what my age? father. I was a few months old. Oh, really young? Oh, yeah. Okay, so you were born English, but then your, your early memories are all West Africa. They're, they're all West Africa, and we used to come back in the holidays, the summer holidays, to see my grandma. So my holidays in England are very much to do with short periods in the summer with my grandma, and then back out in West Africa. And what was your father doing? He initially was, um, he couldn't get a job in England in the 1950s. And uh, he had been at university and interested in research in French, in particular, Norman French. Mm-hmm. But he couldn't find any kind of lectureship um, or research post to look at that. And a job came up in the University of um, the Gold Coast, which was based um, outside um, Accra mm-hmm. in um, <clears throat> what's now Ghana. And he took this post, which was to teach Africans um, uh, French. Uh, The research he decided to do was, um, because he'd been interested in the way in which uh, Norman and Anglo-Saxon had effectively merged, uh, he was very interested in pigeonization of languages. And so he started a research project to look at um, uh, African Africans where you've got a tribe that is on the border between um, the Gold Coast and the Francophone countries like Côte d'Ivoire. And so he was interested to see how uh, they how pigeon um, French and pigeon English developed. 
So yeah, how these two sort of languages would merge and form a third almost, or just not really. Uh, it was really because, in fact, you largely had pidgin French on one side and pidgin English on the other. But it was largely what were the common processes with effectively the same tribe that ah, gave yeah. rise to this pigeonization. So he was interested in that, but actually, I don't know whether he wasn't any good at it. It sounded to me like a great project, but uh, he didn't get very far with it, and he was told he should really uh, not be bothering with this. Um, he should have fo continued to focus on Norman French, which is a respectable thing to study. So in fact, in the end, he gave up in trying to develop his academic career because he couldn't really get the support he needed. And um, he joined uh, an examinations organisation which used to um, examine um, young Africans to come to uh, the UK. To study? To study. Right. So were you there with your whole family or just your father? Or I was there with my brother and my mother. I mean, the whole family. Oh, the whole family went down. Okay. And how many siblings do you have? I have one. One. You're the, you're the older. I'm the oldest. Right. So how long, how long did this last? Years? Decades? We left. Uh, so I went out there in 1951 and uh, we finally left Africa in 1964. Oh, so that's most of your... I mean, most of my early years, yeah. Did you feel, did you, I, I know you were coming back to see you know, your grandmother, but did you feel particularly English still, or, or did you feel somehow West African? Um, I thought I felt English, but I realised that I had a different vision of England to the vision that English people had. The vision that I had was probably 20 or 30 years out of date. Huh. So I, my feeling of, of England was pride, um, pride in seeing the Union Jack flying over the um, castle mm -hmm. uh, in the centre of Accra. Um, I was also not so proud that um, I wasn't happy for the Africans when they had independence either. But it was also, you just felt that we tried to do things to a high standard and there was something very special about um, Britain. Yeah. And uh, we essentially were uh, a civilizing influence. You know, probably aspects of that were wrong, but some aspects were right. were right. And certainly when I came back to England and went to school, um, I realized that England wasn't what I thought it was. It was a, a rougher, more brutal, unfair place than I'd expected. Yeah, can, can you, I mean, I think that arriving as a 13-year-old that you would pick up on that, can you, can you think of examples that um, alerted you to that fact? We went up to Newcastle-upon-Tyne and I was shocked at some of the poverty there, which, of course, in West Africa, I'd never seen poor Europeans. Yeah. The Africans were poor. Yeah. But some of the people working down mines and such like, I remember thinking I'd never seen Africans treated like that and found it incomprehensible that, that British people would be treated like that. And in your schooling, um, did, you, did you find that you mixed right in or, or were the other English boys your age somehow different? They knew things you didn't know about England and I don't know. Well, I think they did. I mean, my, as I said, I think I was, sort of my attitudes were kind of um, 20 or 30 years out of date and probably have continued so for my entire <laughs> life. I can't You're really change it. I can't really change it. Right. Um, I had a... Um, a different accent from the 
boys in Newcastle upon Tyne. Yeah. They're nice, but I always felt a little bit out of it. I probably was a bit out of it. Yeah. And your younger brother, how much younger? He was one and a half years. Oh, okay. So quite similar in age. It wasn't as yeah. if he he has similar memories of Af- West Africa as you yeah, probably did. So can can you tell me when you began to um, have an interest in the sciences? Was it at a young age? Was it in West Africa even? I think it really started in West Africa because we were um, we went to a little mission school, um, which was at the edge of the university. Yeah, the university staff would. Uh, come along to the school um, from time to time and just show primary school children what they were doing. And I can remember a chap coming around to the school um, with a, a Geiger counter um, and showing us uh, how that worked and explaining it. And then we we're all given a chance to go around the place with a Geiger counter and see if we could find stones and things that clicked, which was really very yeah. interesting. Indeed, there were some. That we could find. Um, it turned out the physics department there was supposed to be quite good. But the one I remember that I think made me decide I wanted to be a biologist was um, uh, when uh, they came in with a very large tank in which there was a turtle. But at first we couldn't, we couldn't see what was in there and all I remember is what looked like something sort of at the edge of this tank and the Africans who were, there was a man in a white coat who was European and there were various African um, uh, uh, university staff who were you know, dressed very, very informally and they were holding this thing and every time this kind of flipper moved anywhere near them they would jump out of the way and the thing would nearly upset and then when it was put down they all ran backwards out of the way of whatever it was in this tin bathtub. And it turned out to be this turtle, and the chap in the white coat explained there was nothing to fear, it was only a turtle. What, what, what size are we talking about? I mean, It was a big one, it was like a really big, oh, okay. a really huge bathtub, which took about six people oh, to, okay. to lift. Right. It was seawater right. in there, there was this huge thing. Well, I don't know exactly, I mean, was, I was only a little boy, but right. it seemed jolly big. It wasn't, yeah. it wasn't, uh, it wasn't something the size of a dinner plate, yeah. it was like the size of a small table in there. And uh, anyway, they would rush back away from the edge, saying it would it would uh, uh, it would bite us. Yeah, uh, this thing go chuck you, which was their <laughs> which was their <laughs> expression that this thing was going to uh, uh, you know catch you, bite you, and um, and that it was poisonous. And they were very cunning. They would these things would would sort of wait around and you'd think they were slow and then they would suddenly, they had a huge turn of speed and could gallop up and catch you. Anyway, the, 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 the scientist went and stood by it and sort of touched its head and, and there was kind of, uh, um, you know, some of them were shielding their eyes, feeling he was about to be devoured in front yeah. of them. They were really terrified of it. Um, and he let us come closer to it. And in fact, it made a big impression on me. And I remember asking him or what are you going to do with it now so because he explained how he caught it then and I thought well that'd be great fun to go catching wild animals and then he was taking it to his laboratory I didn't even really know what that was um then he was going to experiment on it and I thought what a wonderful idea going into the wild catching wild animals and 
and then experimenting or whatever that was. And so I decided I would be, be a scientist after that. Can I ask you, it's, so it sounds like, you know, they bring in this thing and a big group of people are terrified of it. But yeah. this one person in a white coat is like, I'm not terrified of it. In fact, Correct. I can control it or whatever. And you're sort of like, that must be interesting to be that person who can... Yes. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I could he seemed extremely calm, extremely rational. Um, and I thought that in a way that was my model. That's what I'd like to be, yeah. yeah that's yeah. what I'd like to be. Okay, so that's the beginning of it. And then yeah. do you start sort of like leaning towards science classes or doing, I don't know, looking for animals on your own? or? Well, we, we, used, to, we used to, when I was in West Africa, we'd look for um, animals on our own. So we would, um, um, you know, we'd find some hapless insect and dissect it. And then occasionally we would kill lizards with bows and arrows and chop them up. And look at that. And yeah. look at that. So there were... Things we did, I mean, you know, there was no TV. Um, the radio was turned on at six o'clock in the evening so my father could hear the news and then it was turned off. There was nothing, nothing you to do. just just had to, yeah. to entertain yourself. Yeah. So we would go around the place on our bicycles with great big machetes and sticks and looking for, I suppose, trouble really. And then occasionally if we found a snake, um, we would have a go at it. And sometimes we could shoot a lizard. Bows and arrows were very inadequate. Yes, yeah. string and bits <laughs> right. of bamboo and right. such like. But occasionally we'd catch something, and that was a whole afternoon's work to catch a small lizard. Okay, so then uh, let's keep going with this. And then, so yeah. when you you arrived to the UK around, I, I don't know, I guess apparently twelve, thirteen years old. Yeah. And you're now the education is getting a little, a little more formalized. You're approaching high school, I suppose. It is. It is. It was the secondary school, and it was a good school, and. Uh, but we couldn't take biology at that time. It wasn't an option. You had to go into the... Um, it was only the last three years of school that you could take biology. Um, so, in fact, I wanted to take biology, but it wasn't an option. But I found I also enjoyed chemistry. Hmm. Um, I love the experimental side of that. Um, physics, less so. Uh, there was less experimental stuff, but the practicals were also much more stressful in that we had to sort of get all kind of things set up within a certain period of time and take measurements. And I was always very, very cautious and careful, wanted to make sure I wired everything up possible, you know, properly. Yeah. Um, and I therefore found it quite stressful to have to do this under, under time pressure. Yeah. Whereas with chemistry, it just seemed to come perfectly naturally. It didn't, didn't matter. Anyway, then in my last um, uh, three years, I did do biology. Um, but by that stage, I'd really, chemistry was really embedded. So, in fact, I had these two subjects which I loved. Um, probably I liked chemistry more than biology, but I still thought about going to university and doing um, more biology than I've ended up doing. And in fact, I went out to um, Naples on a summer project mm-hmm. um, working with. Uh, one of the university researchers, um, where I just acted as a lab assistant for his work on octopus. They were looking at learning and memory yeah. in octopus yeah. at the Stazione Zoologica in Naples. Um, and I had a very interesting time, and I enjoyed it. But in the end, I didn't like the whole animal experimentation. You know, I had to be anaesthetist and um, give the animals anaesthetic so that they could go into their brains and remove bits of brain and then and see what the effect would right. be on learning and memory and such like. And 
I just felt very uncomfortable, particularly at the end where all the animals had to be killed and uh, all their brains were pickled to make sure that they could, they could check them when they were back in Cambridge to check where the lesions had been right. and to, see, to try to account for um, how this might have affected their behaviour. So uncomfortable in the way that this felt cruel? It felt cruel. Yeah. It was cruel. Um, but you know, I would do my bit with my best within my own uh, work to make sure the, that the octopus was well anaesthetized, but not so well anaesthetized it was in danger of dying. It was always a bit of a, um, a balance. Yeah. Um, but I didn't lose a single octopus. Um, to over anaesthesia, or in fact, have anything coming round on the operating bench, which made me feel, you know, I, I was doing what I could do, but right, it so just made me feel uncomfortable. Right. So then you, you would do this process, and you would keep it at this perfect level of um, unconsciousness, I suppose. That was the, that was what I tried to do. Yeah, but then it would then it would they would just kill it anyway at the end. Yeah. Well, they would they would uh, well after six weeks. I didn't know exactly yeah. what they would do yeah. at the end, but in the end, they did kill them. Yeah, I could see yeah. how that would weigh on your mind. I it's it's. Just a bit depressing because the octopus are quite intelligent. You know, we showed them, we, we trained them how to count. Yeah. So they could count, you know, they could distinguish between six and seven. They could count up to 13. Um, and and I, I just felt increasingly worried about it. Yeah. I had the same thing in Cambridge when I first started um, in Cambridge physiology. And it's not like this now, but... I did um, my first years more biological subjects than I later did. But, you know, the first experience was going into a room with all these um, decerebrate rabbits who were lying back and, you know, you had to wire up the heart to to, to smoke drums that were going round. And it was just, it was, I just found it a nightmare. And same thing with frogs, pith frogs. They all have been done. And... um, you know, I can still remember just with complete horror the the two girls next to me who who got their scalpel out. I think they were both um, medics, and they were obviously a bit uneasy. I was very uneasy, I can tell you. But I'd I'd started very very carefully. But anyway, one of them just stuck this scalpel into this rabbit, and the rabbit screamed, and and they they both passed out they, just, they did they, one of them just they just one of them went very white and the other one just fainted straight oh away and managed to yeah. sort of stop them bashing their head they fell but i stopped her bashing her head on the floor and yeah of course of course the lab technician comes along and said oh naturally it prods the rabbit yeah it's just you know it just didn't feel a thing you know and then did something around the back of its head presumably to take up the remaining bit of brain that was in there and it was just horrible. It was just like a complete nightmare. And I thought, I can't, I can't be doing this. Yeah, but that was not... A, you came to Trinity for your college, did you not? Yes, I came right. to Trinity, yes. This is before Trinity. No, this is at the university. So Trinity, oh, okay. Okay. Trinity is, um, you know, tr- Trinity is, you might say, your home when you come to Cambridge University. Or each college is a home yeah. for students. Yeah, and Trinity was yours. So Trinity was my home. So what... The university do the practicals and they do the big industrial lectures where everyone, you know, 150, 200, 300 people go into a lecture hall. Yeah. Um, what the college does is the college provides you with accommodation. So that sense, a bit like an American sort of dormitory type yeah. thing. But in addition, we also um, cultivate a social life around it. So people will do rowing for the college or they might do sports for the college. 
Um, but mainly, uh, we organise teaching, individual tuition. So, for example, I would come back to college and then ah. twice a week I would have a session, at least an hour, with a top academic who would go over um, what I'd learned in the lectures. I might have to write an essay or I might have to do some worked examples under their nose um, and they would uh, um, help to um, make sure I knew what was going on in the lectures so I was up to date and furthermore that perhaps even anticipate difficult things that were going to come up. That's a great system. Yeah. It's a very good system, and that's what Oxford and Cambridge have, which I think it's more expensive to do. Sure. It costs us quite a lot to do it. But I think it's part of the um, the advantage that Oxbridge offers. Yeah. I because would... it's not just simply an industrialised process. Yeah. No, I, I was thinking how that would have been beneficial to me when I was in, in college. And so when did you finish your, your PhD? What year that was in 76. 76. Okay. So, um, and so if... after that... Uh, in 76 in I was at Imperial College I had got um, I think at that stage I on the basis of the work I'd done in protein sequencing I'd been offered I'd gone in for competition for a fellowship here um, and I got, got a was awarded a junior research fellowship uh-huh. here but I was allowed to postpone it um, so I didn't have to return immediately. Um, but when I was at Imperial College during that sort of time of postponement, Fred Sanger came and gave a lecture on, um, I think it was the plus-minus method of DNA sequencing. And I realised then that this was going to shape the future. It was quite obvious then that all my work in sequencing proteins um, would become irrelevant if DNA sequencing took off. So I thought I'd better come and learn some, I'd better learn some DNA sequencing mm-hmm. because not only would it give you the ability to, to, to sequence genes and solve protein structures from their genes, really, by taking the encoded sequence, right. but it would also give you um, the possibility of changing proteins. And that was something I was interested in from very early time. So the, the, the question becomes, I mean, this is early days for the biotech industry overall, right? That's yeah. in the U.S. Or, or the U.K. So how did you become interested in this concept of, you know, the research becoming something that eventually pushes out a therapeutic? Well, it was quite slow because, um, I, you know, in the 70s, indeed, people were start late 70s, people were starting to useful things. But again, it may seem surprising, but it sort of passed me by. Um, I was much more interested in sequencing proteins and understanding how they worked. Mm-hmm. And so therefore, by the early 80s, I'd, um, I, I'd returned to a problem that we hadn't fully solved. And that was, um, although I determined the sequence of one amino acid alterian synthetase, which was the tryptophanyl enzyme, and had done some work on the tyrosyl tyrosynthetase, we'd only got it into some huge blocks of sequence. We couldn't finish it off completely. And I think it turned out later that was due to some very hydrophobic bits of sequence, which really were very difficult to uh, um, get significant peptides with any significant length that would allow you to do the overlaps. 
So we had the tyrosol TNA-synthetase sequence, and David Blow was solving the structure. Um, and really, they needed the sequence to feed into their structure. We could feed bits in, but there were still bits that were clearly missing, particularly, it turns out, at the subunit interfaces. Mm -hmm. So I thought, well, what we should try to do and, um, is to finish them off by gene sequencing. So I, we could then you know, get that paper published, you know, get the whole thing done, right. sequence, and have the gene sequence. So um, I collaborated with a friend of mine, David Barker, um, and he'd started cloning the genes for the various synthetases using genetic methods. And, um, and he came up to Cambridge and we rattled through several synthetases very fast by DNA sequencing. Uh -huh. And because we both got significant amounts of protein sequence, it was very easy for us to line up the various reading frames and to work out what we're missing. I, I want to talk about, um, so this seems like pretty soon you have to be getting toward founding CAT. Right? No, but by this stage, um, I'd started to think, I'd been going around all these active sites mutating them, and I thought, actually, it's a bit depressing, really, because you just knock out residues and you say, this is important, that's important. Yeah, it deals with the question, but shouldn't protein engineering be more than this? Shouldn't yeah. we be able to create completely new molecules that are going to do things that we can't otherwise do? And... So I started wondering on how one would do that. And at that point, um, I, I started to think about uh, trying to find some kind of what I call framework protein, which we could use um, to uh, build new catalytic sites. Like all the time I was thinking about generating new catalysts. And um, I got... I was thinking about tin barrel proteins, mm -hmm. um, but then uh, Fred Sanger by this stage was um, going to be going into retirement, and he said, uh, he was very enthusiastic about the work I was doing with the enzymes, but said, look, Cesar Milstein will be the next head of division. You'd better go and talk to him about your future plans, because at that stage I was just tenure track. Oh, yeah. Right. So I went to see Cesar, and Cesar was very enthusiastic. He said it was great. He said, just there's only one thing wrong with what you're doing. And I said, what's that? He said, uh, it's your work on enzymes. You should be working on antibodies. They're much more exciting. And actually, so I kind of took the hint and I realised I'd better... <laughs> that was your next <laughs> right. So, um, I'd better work on... I'd better work on... Um, um, well, I, I'd better work on antibodies, but I also realised that he was right. There was a lot unknown yeah. about antibodies, yeah. um, about how their effective functions worked, about the how their binding sites worked, all of that kind of thing. So I, so I said, look, one of the key things to working on the enzymes had been that I had to have the enzyme, you know, cloned and expressed. The tyrosyl tyrosynthetase, we got E. coli to produce huge amounts of it, and I said that really. There wasn't at that stage a method for producing decent quantities of folded antibody. So he said, Well, um, okay, well, um, we're going to try and solve that. Michael Neuberger is setting up an expression system, and um, he was a chap I knew. Uh, he'd also been in Trinity College, and um, I knew him very well actually. He's really very, was, he died also unfortunately of cancer um, fairly recently. And he was um, 
uh, he'd gone to Germany to learn something about um, antibodies and in particular uh, about somatic mutation mm-hmm. antibodies with um, one of the great German professors Klaus Rojewski who's still going and um, uh, he came back and he started to set up an expression system and by the about 83 the expression system was starting to work and I started therefore to think about how we could apply it so Michael was very happy to let me use it for um, you know various types of engineering experiments although he had some plans himself for making some chimerics and doing one or two other sort of major domain transplants I was more fo- going to focus on um, smaller scale intra-domain changes so that's the way we sort of divided up um, but then I got um, uh, I was thinking about doing this but then I got um, attacked on my way to work um, and suffered a terrible injury on my right arm I did not know this but just random? it was a Pretty much random. The guy, there's a guy who was trying to run me down, and when he failed, he he attacked me with an iron bar. Um, I did not know this. Good in Lord. the process, he pulled out my right arm, your shoulder and, socket, and shoulder socket, and I have a brachial plexus lesion which damaged all the nerves. So my arm was paralysed uh, for over a year. I couldn't do anything with it. I didn't even know if I'd get it back again. So that was a very bad period. But so, just frankly, did, yeah. was this person thrown in jail? Was this person caught even? He was caught, and he did go to jail and, for a and year. Did he have any sort of reasoning? He was just a crazy human who was attacking. I think others. he was a bit. I think he was a bit crazy. Um, he. What happened is he'd come out of a side road with a van, and I'd been going on my bike, and uh, he suddenly came out and then stopped in the middle of the road. Um, with the whole van right across my side of the road yeah. and I um, hit the front of the van bounced off uh, but actually wasn't hurt so I continued I thought actually that stage I had also been involved in shifting house and had taken the vans around and I thought it's probably some poor person like me who's trying to shift their furniture and isn't completely in control of a van. Yes, <laughs> yeah. you know, to, yeah. to sort of do a jump stop. Yeah. It's like he jumped into the road. You yeah. know, I thought, yeah, yeah. oh God, oh well, there's no point in, you know, um, kicking up a fuss about it. You know, I'm safe. There's no damage caused to right. bike or car or anything. Anyway, this van came up after me and, um, and the guy got out and he looked vaguely apologetic. But then he walked up to me and he just smashed me around my head with this iron bar. Um, so he, yes. and then he tried to run me over but I managed to roll out of the way and then his, it was just astonishing and when he got caught by police he said oh yes I was I was on my way out of my van and I saw this uh, revolting little academic on his way to cut up bodies so I thought I'd run the little bastard over oh my god okay so, so, so yeah. you really realize, I mean you know he may have just been being ironic or sarcastic um, but that was a statement that he gave to the police as if that was somehow justified the actions almost. I don't know. Yes. I, I mean, later yeah. he argued I swore at him or done something. But actually, well, it's entirely possible I did swear. Um, if you had a van come straight into you. But I, I just continued and went on. That was the end of it, as far as I was concerned. Yeah. So, so actually, it was... Uh, but the problem was I was in intense pain for a long period of time. And I couldn't do any more practical work. Yeah. 
So my right arm was totally out of it, and it pretty much stopped me doing practical experiments the rest of my life. So, um, because it's never fully recovered. But what I did do is, uh, just the pain would just seep into your soul. You just couldn't stop it. Um, but there was a way I found of stopping it, and that was to go and look at structures. So I spent my time with a big Anderson Sutherland computer graphics machine looking at antibody structures. Huh. And I found I could sort of disappear into that world, I mean, trying to look at how we, where we could make mutations, what we could do. And so that, in a way, that deep knowledge of feelings to where I was in a structure and where loops were and, um, and what supported what probably proved rather important for the, the idea I had of taking the CDRs from one antibody and plugging them into another, which yeah. was the first humanized yeah. um, antibodies. Yeah. Um, so actually, I don't know whether it was a good thing. I think I might have done it anyway, but yeah. I can't be sure um, that, that if it hadn't been for that very extensive and deep immersion in structure that you know, I might not have come up with the idea. But you're sure. saying um, that the, the actual pain in the shoulder socket was enough, but if you were staring at structures, it, you would sort of it push you, that. You could push it aside. I mean, yeah. I realised with many things, I mean, I've discovered, for example, with toothache, you know, if you, you can, if you focus on something else fully, you, you, this throbbing pain, you can sometimes just push it aside. It's when you don't have anything else to think about um, that it, it sort of... It becomes, becomes yeah, it takes much over more difficult. Brain. It take, yeah. takes over your brain completely. Yeah. Yeah. And so, um, these are your first steps towards humanizing. So you, you did that. I, I was I was curious whether someone came to you with this problem, and and you said maybe there's a technology I can create to get around this. Some some industry aspect, but you're saying no. you did it on your own. It it came from a different approach. I mean, clearly I'd been talking to Michael Neuberger, and I knew he was going to be making chimeric antibodies. So that's somewhere in the back of my mind. What I was interested in doing was making a framework for um, inserting catalytic residues. So I was, th I was thinking about a completely different problem. And then in the course of that, I thought, well, do we even know that the antibody framework, what Kabat had called a framework, is in fact a framework? Yeah. I thought, how would I prove that experimentally? And I thought, well, if it's a framework, if that's all it is, and I then looked at the structures saw superimposed human and mouse antibodies, I could see the frameworks were superposable. CDRs differed. I thought, well, if it's a real framework, I should be able to transplant the loops of one antibody onto another and retain the activity. And I thought, hell, if I can do that, I've discovered how effectively to create um, antibodies that are much more human than the straightforward chimerics. When does it become clear to you that you guys need to form a company around this? And whose idea was it? So the MRC um, uh, uh, had to work out what it was going to do. And at that stage, um, Celtec professed an interest in having an exclusive license to the whole technology. But at that stage, I, I have to say I was not comfortable with the idea because my view was people had got lots of monoclonal antibodies um, in their freezers which could be turned into therapeutics by operation of this technology. Um, and therefore, why would we want to wrap it up in a single company? Because we'd already done use. the proof of concept, yeah. and therefore, in principle, as a public body, your duty is to 
you know, I felt was to allow as many people as possible to use it. Yeah. Um, and to see it out there and to see it put into patients. So we had an argument within the MRC, um, uh, which was very unpleasant. But in the end, um, Cesar Milstein and Aaron Klug, who was the director of the LMB, supported the stance I was taking. And that the technology would generally be licensed out. In particular, um, there were some areas reserved for Saltec, namely antibodies they were already working on with particular partners, um, and I think the field of anti-TNF antibodies, they had an exclusive one. But otherwise, um, it was agreed to be, uh, the MRC would license it itself. Um, and in fact, the MRC and Saltec came to a very good agreement in which um, the, 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 uh, the MRC had access to a Celtic patent, which was the so-called BOSS patent, which is very similar to the Kabili patent yes, um, yeah. of, cell, of, uh, of Genentech's. So that meant that if people got a license to, um, to my technology, uh, the CDL grafting technology, they could also have a license to this BOSS patent. And that was very reassuring and definitely helped us um, uh, um, license more, more companies. And so Celtic licensed... Uh, one or two companies in the MRC licensed, I think, in the end, over 40 for this technology. And it was set to be at a low royalty rate um, in this 1% to 2% level plus... For each license. For, right. for each license yeah. plus an upfront fee, which I think initially was about 25k and then went up to about 40k. So it's actually intended to get people started. Yeah. And so a lot of people did. And uh, Genentech was one of the companies that... Um, um, I believe did get licensed for this, not through the MRC, but through Celtic. Um, which, which led to things like Herceptin, Herceptin, Avastin, yeah, yeah, yeah. So those things. So they they definitely um, use the underlying uh, technology for that purpose. Um, we're headed toward CAT. We're headed towards CAT. So by that stage, I'd become aware of companies. I but I'd been taking the stance of. Um, trying to see things licensed out non-exclusively but I'd also been very keen on getting them out If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural looking results was through surgery, think again Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you even when we're on a budget we still deserve nice things quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80 percent less than similar brands they have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at 50 dollars, luxurious italian leather bags and so much more plus quince only works with factories that use safe ethical and responsible manufacturing get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with quince 
Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. ...there into patients. More than ever, I was convinced that we needed to we needed to find a way of making sure any new technology we had would be out, put out for patients. And um, uh, by uh, the late the late eighties, probably about eighty seven or eighty eight, um, we had been developing collaborations with. Um, one or two companies who wanted to uh, make humanized antibodies, and they um, were they faced the first step of how do we clone them? And in fact, the methods for cloning were the standard oligo DT type tailing mechanism. And I realised with a number of things people wanted to do, this was becoming a rate limiting step. And we better think about a faster way of doing it. Right. So at that point, we, um, I, I thought about the polymerase chain reaction, and that we started our work on that before the thermostable enzyme became available, and therefore have to add fresh enzyme every cycle. But the first thing I needed to do was to design primers, and I looked at the V genes, and at first sight they. It looked quite daunting. You're okay with some taking a primer in the J segment, but the five primed end of the V has got lots of mismatches. Yeah. But fortunately, because of my work on site direct immunogenesis, I looked very carefully at all of the mismatches and then thought of primers that would allow me to, to nevertheless, by use of suitable annealing conditions, to incorporate those mismatches so I would still get a successful back priming reaction. So we devised various primers on the basis of the mouse sequences that we could find at that point and um, built them. And we showed in one or two hybridomas that they did in, we could indeed amplify the, the, from cDNA and also, in fact, from genomic DNA, uh-huh. um, the V genes from those. Um, now, having done that with hybridomas, um, at one point, sometime during that period, um, uh, we decided that it would be a good idea to make um, a monoclonal antibody. I'd never made a monoclonal antibody before. And I was shown how to do it by one of Cesar's people, um, went into tissue culture and tried a couple of times. Every time I tried anything, the thing got infected. or uh, It was a total disaster. There was, there was all kinds of mongus and um, uh, things emerging from my samples. And I just thought this is the most frustrating, stupid business that I've ever come across making monoclonal antibodies. Uh, it's not for me. The sooner we can basically you know, get the genes out, the better. So then I started thinking, well, actually, why are we going to the trouble to make... What we do is we make monoclonal antibodies, and then we take the genes out of them, and we 
do things with those genes, you know, humanise them. Why don't we just take the mouse spleen and get the genes straight up and somehow find a way of whacking that into coli or whatever and just isolating the genetic, the, the activities, the encolian activities directly. Now, of course, we knew we would lose the pairings, but we weren't quite sure whether the heavy light chain pairings, you might get away with it, right. you might find there were heavy chains with sufficient activities, which indeed we discovered at a later point there were, that was so. So I started to suddenly realise that this might provide an entirely different way of making antibodies that we didn't, we just got rid of hybridomas, we just, we just immunised the mouse and go straight to the, straight to the V genes. So I, um, and then of course I started thinking, well, if we go to humans, you know, very, very quickly you realise the implications of this approach. So the real challenge was, first of all, to make sure we got the right primus for both mouse and human, um, satisfy ourselves of our design, make sure all our protocols are working. Um, and there was the further issue of the immense tedium of the process. Yeah. But by that stage, it turned out that um, uh, it was suggested one could use TAC um, polymerase. And I remembered from my earlier work, 10 years earlier, actually more than 10 years earlier, that where I'd, I'd been working on the enzymes, uh, tyrosyl and tryptophan arteriolase synthetase, from a thermostable organism. And I knew, even though we'd gone to Imperial College, that there were still stocks of thermostable organisms in the basement. So I <laughs> discovered one of them, in fact, had been used by a side group, which was um, another protein chemical group, which was run by Jan Harris, uh, he'd been looking at glycolytic enzymes from thermostable organisms. And I remembered that one of those had been um, phosphofructokinase, I think, from Thermus aquaticus. So I thought, we've got that bug, in, or we did have that bug in the basement, you know, 15 years ago. Um, I can't believe so, you're still there. Still there. So we went, <laughs> I, we unearthed it, you know, under lots of ice. We found it, and I was allowed to make it, so I think... At one point, I must have had about a million times the world's supply of Thermos aquaticus because this stuff had been made portened down in massive fermenters and they used to do these big smashes yeah. where they would take kilograms of the stuff and smash it up. And so I think I got about a kilogram's worth of Thermos aquaticus. So we were able to isolate the enzyme from that. It was going off all the time, you know, but we were able to get huge quantities of the stuff. Now, at the same time, I thought, well, we better try and develop a machine. There were no machines on the on the market because it was tedious just to keep moving it from one vial to another. Yeah. So again, we um, we went. The MRC had a wonderful workshop, and I remember talking to them about what the best way of doing it would be. And you've know, got something hot, and we've got we want to make it cold very quickly. And then one of these chaps who was, I think from deepest Norfolk, said something like, have you ever seen a blacksmith, lad? And I said, well, well yes. Well, it comes that temperature of that uh, hoof cut, that um, horseshoe comes down pretty quickly if you drop it in cold water. Yep. So I said, right. So therefore, uh, very quickly, we realised the idea. We, what we would have is a water-cooled thing, and we would take a heating block, we could heat it up to whatever temperature you wanted, whack in water, and uh, and it would cool it. Yeah. So we uh, worked 
it turns out that there was a connection from the workshop to Techni, which was an instrument company, and uh, they said, well, actually, we could develop it, but frankly, there's much more. Um, it would be cheaper for the lab if you didn't use the workshop facilities, but you know, you could use Techni, if said they'll help, because they'd love to develop a machine. So we actually created a sort of prototype for a whole range of Techni machines, and um, so we then started working on uh, pushing some of these um, hybridomas through, and we found that we could indeed clone hybridomas. At the same time, we started working on repertoires from spleens. So that's the way it started going. And then I discovered at that stage that uh, the scripts seemed to be talking about similar kind of things, um, and I realised we might have some competition scripts and strategy um, I discovered were working on something that sounded a bit the same so um, I think at that point we were ahead um, I um, did ring up Richard Lerner and had a talk to him and we agreed to share some information which we did he's at scripts he's at scripts yeah. um, uh, anyway in the end we went we sort of went our separate ways but we had shared some information and we did talk to each other about it. Um, it was sort of, it was obviously worrying that there was someone else doing it. On the other hand, it was also reassuring because some people I talked to clearly thought I was a lunatic. When yeah. you say, well, we're going to create billions of genes and then somehow we're going to find out the ones that work. You know, well, how are you going to do it? I don't know. Yeah. We're just going to fuck you. Right. We're going to sort it out. You know, I think we can make these genes. So, so actually, it, it was encouraging that there was somebody else that you didn't feel quite so lonely but yeah. at the same time you felt you felt agitated by the potential competition that we would have so and I'm sure Richard Lerner felt, felt the same way yeah, yeah. Um, so we went our we went our different ways and we um, decided to uh, um, well I realised that this would give ultimately a way of making human antibodies. We didn't know exactly how we'd do it, so I thought I'd only got a small group in the lab at that stage, about five or six people, um, and they were pretty much tied up with working on the hybridomas and working on the repertoires, and we needed to find, um, we needed someone who'd be thinking about the various screening methods. Now, we had thought about phage, but um, we were also uneasy uh, about it. Um, people had worked on M13, as I'd worked on M13, filaments bacteriophage, were well aware that it very readily lost inserts. So we were very, very uneasy about that. Um, but nevertheless, we thought we'd, we should probably do something, and we also started to look at E. coli um, uh, display, possibility mm -hmm. E. coli display. Um, but around that time, I thought, well, we need to get more, we need to get some more people in because this is just going to be a matter of we don't know which one's going to work. We don't even know if we should go into eukaryotic cells because Cesar was saying to me, I don't think you should be doing coli. I think you should be doing eukaryotic cells. And this is um, there's about five of you. You said this is still at the MRC. At the MRC, yes. So, and you know, there were we were working on trying to look at coli expression systems, but we, we knew we'd got to devise a selection system. And so I could see we were going to end up with a brick wall of, of having repertoires, and, and we were, we'd been working on making human primers, so started sequencing human genes to 
try to work out where we would, um, uh, how we could design better primers. Mm -hmm. So we were doing a number of things which were all on the lines of how can we make ultimately quickly move towards human anti-self antibodies because that's what we realised was going to be what we what we needed to make. Um, and so we were worried. We were worried about selection systems, um, but I, I just—it's one of the things with technology. Sometimes you can see a, a simple solution, but other times um, you just know you've got to try lots and lots of different things because you don't. One of them might work easily, another one, for whatever reason, just won't work, and it might take you years to discover why it didn't work. But I just wanted to try a good range of them. We didn't have the manpower to do it. So I started looking around for um, companies that might support it. Um, and in fact, Celtech were not interested. They, it's understandable, um, I had not been helpful to their interests um, in uh, their wish to have an exclusive license right, on the humanising yes. patent. Yeah, yeah. They also said, look, We've already spent a fortune on developing the humanising technology and now you're coming along with something else and, you know, in industry, you know, you can't just keep flipping from one thing to the next. Um, are you saying, are, have you got reason to believe the humanising doesn't work? I said, no, it does work. It's a wonderful technology. But this, uh, but this could be better. Yeah. Um, and, you know... They said, well, you're clearly having severe doubts about, you clearly, that's not what you're doing. You're focusing on this other technology. So it's just, I am. And that's because I've done humanising. I'm a scientist. I move on. And they said, well, we're companies and we, we have to focus on, on doing this. We've got limited resources as well. And I think that we need, which I, I kind of understood. Yeah. Perfectly reasonable. Um, we asked one or two other companies. I won't go into who they were, but... Um, if they were interested. And their kind of general view was, actually, it's all very interesting. You seem to be managing very well so far. Why don't you just carry on? And my view was, well, unless we get extra resources, we are going to be beaten on this because in the end, if you've got a big group in scripts and a big group in strategy, in the end, they've just got yeah. more firepower and we won't be able to cope with yeah. it. So actually, at that stage, um, a, in the summer there were two things that made a difference the first was I went round to um, Amersham to give a talk and I'd been consulting for them on their making humanised antibodies and they'd got a nice team there which included a chap called David Chiswell who was the team leader mm -hmm. he was very keen on making therapeutic antibodies um, and he told me when I arrived there, we've had some bad news just a couple of days ago, um, we're all going to be made redundant because someone in the accounting department's made some mistake and therefore, of course, the department, the, the accounting department don't get fired, it's the scientists <laughs> who get fired. <laughs> right. But we've got, we're probably all going to get dispersed. And, um, do you know, your new technology, because I've been explaining it to him, is just so exciting you know, it could be worth setting up a company, which was the conclusion I'd already come to. Um, can I help? And I said, well, actually, um, quite probably, yes, uh, you could. Let's keep in touch. 
and which we did. And then a, a, either a few weeks earlier or later, I can't remember exactly when it was, um, I had um, a visit from an old friend called Geoffrey Grigg from Australia. Uh-huh. And he had worked with Fred Sanger uh, many years earlier. He'd been in Cambridge. He'd got some kind of visiting rights at King's College. Um, before Fred retired, Fred had said to me, um, oh, Jeff Grigg would like to come on a visit to the lab, but I'm not going to be around then. Um, you know, I'll have retired. Um, would you be interested in hosting him? He said, I don't think you'll get much work out of him, but he said he's an interesting person. Um, he made me, when he was in Cambridge the last time, you know, he mainly seemed to spend his time um, talking about wine and going to dinner. I said, well... All right, but I said, you know, I sort of did it as a favour for Fred. But when I met Jeff, I really liked him. He's a really nice man. And he, he wasn't demanding. I gave him part of a fume cupboard to work in. Yeah. He didn't do very much experiments. But we did talk quite a lot. And that had been a few years earlier. And then he breezed through and he said... He wanted to know about what I was doing. So I heard, he'd heard on the Australian grapevine I'd been doing some interesting things mm. with repertoires. He wanted to know more about it. So at the end of this dinner, uh, which we, which we, uh, for which we met, you know, I was just desperate to get back to the lab to do things, and he was saying, "Calm down, calm down. Look, I think we'd like to invest in that." In this. I said, well, "Who's we?" Well, Peptech was his company. Yeah. He'd set up a company in the mid in the mid eighties that hadn't been able to get institutional investors, but it had gone out to what he termed the mums and dads of Australia yeah. and had raised money. I guess that could, it must be crowdsourcing kind of money. Yeah. Um, and that company was focusing on various horse products. So it turned out their board of a company was very much into horses, peptide products for horses, slow-release huh. horse hormones. Um, but I think it also coloured their attitude to things because I think being interested in the horse world, they were essentially betting people, not investors. And I think they saw the opportunity for Cambridge Antibody as being a bet. So that's what they more or less told me. They said, well, we thought it's great, let's take a bet on it. I mean, that's the perfect analogy for building biotechs, really. Yeah. It is sort of like a bet. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But that's what they said. So it's a... So, he said, look, we'd like to invest. Uh, we'd actually really like to buy your technology um, and take it to Australia. Would you come? And I said, well, one, the MRC almost certainly won't let you have it after the debacle with monoclonal antibodies where they didn't file a patent. Yeah. This one where there is a patent filed, if they then give it to an Australian company for them to take out of the country, this is going to cause trouble. This, of course, was still the time of Margaret Thatcher, given the MRC such a hard time for... Yeah. Um, allowing monoclonals to be not patented. So they said, okay, that's all right. Well, what if we set up a, a sort of company in which we hold a significant minority stake? It can be a UK company, it can be based here, you can do your research here, and uh, we'll just have a major stake in it. So that's what we did. And it was all set up within about two months. Astonishing. They were very fast, they were very fast, and... In those early stages, they were very good. Everything was on a handshake. I've seen nothing like it. 
but it, or since. It did then go on to, I mean, you did, so that was set up as sort of Peptex help, yeah? It was set up with Peptex finances. help and with a significant number of board were Peptex members yes. they were on. But then you must have gone out and drummed up finances. Well, well they did. Of course, we didn't know um, any of that. They said they would help us. They did actually drum up finances. It was hard. The early 90s were very difficult to get money. Yes, yes. Uh, very difficult at various stages we thought we'd go under. But they did manage to uh, get some finances in, although it's also fair to say when we had good news, there was at least one occasion that they used that issue um, new to have a rights issue at a higher price than they would otherwise have done in right. Australia. Right. So therefore, they effectively were using us as a way of validating their main company, which was... Um, you know, not looking so exciting at that stage. So I, I want if I can ask about, so then in, in, um, CAT becomes sort of the, the flagship biotech company of the UK in the late 90s, early 2000s. Yeah. It seemed to me that it helped build the UK biotech industry in a way, but both because it became well-known and because there's a large exit, which then somehow validated investors, I think. Yeah. Do, do you think that that's accurate? Uh, very difficult for me to tell. Um, you know, I, I um, stepped off the board in 96 before the flotation um, for a number of reasons. I was very tired. I'd spent about seven days a week for seven years yeah. involved in doing it. So, for instance, 1989, I felt we'd taken the science forward. There was, some, there was an ugly side to some of the uh, board uh, yeah. Exchanges as they brought in new investors, there was more dissension. Some people wanted to do a quick run for for um, a listing, and um, in my view, uh, uh, might I don't know whether they did, but might misrepresent the value of what we had. Um, I just started to feel uncomfortable with a number of things. So in the end, I was also very very tired. So I thought, okay. Well, I stepped back from it, wished them well, and uh, let them get on with it. And what they did was to, to float a few months after that in 97. And then, in fact, their real escalation of value came in the sort of biotech bubble in, in 2000, yeah. where the share prices shot up about tenfold, I think, for a short period. Um, ultimately, they got bought out by AstraZeneca. Right, so then... Uh, and. Uh, um, but, but, you know, the, the company, what they'd done, I mean, their big success really was um, Humira. If it hadn't been for Humira, they would have gone under. Yes. Um, and the pity about Humira is they didn't, or AstraZeneca in particular, didn't maximise the value it could have got from Humira. They, they sold it. They sold it. They, right. sold, they sold it in early flat stage. Out. They yeah. sold it flat out. Yeah. And, and the MRC also sold its royalty share very early on, uh, which actually neither I nor the MRC laboratory wanted. But the, but the MRC head office decided for whatever reason they wanted to do that. Um, but I, we thought at that stage it was a big mistake. I think it was sold out on a net present value of about a billion dollar drug. I think that CATS, I think um, AstraZeneca sold out on a net present value of two to three billion. Um, of course, you could say that 
yeah, a lot of things could have gone wrong. Yes, um, which but, they could have done. But looking back, but looking back, certainly I would have been willing to have taken the risk with all my um, all the royalties that might otherwise have accrued to me. Yes. So and, we, and, and 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 as was the uh, my institution the MRC and Cambridge. Yes. yes. Right. So the MRC, MRC I read I read someplace that they pulled in I don't know f- roughly four hundred million dollars in royalties off that drug, but we should also say that you know the, the Humira did thirteen billion last year or something. So yeah. it turned out to be an incredible seller. It was a yes, and I think I think you couldn't have predicted it would sell quite no. as much, but no, you no. might have thought it could get to five or six billion. Yes. Yeah. Right. So um, which would still have been sizable. Which was still insizable. And, and, you know, Abbott did a fantastic job. Yes. Of, you know, in selling and developing it, actually. Developing it, enhancing indications, and also raising the price indirectly yeah. over the years. Yeah. So all that. Yeah. But, and so, but we should also say, I think, that, you know, CAT being sold for £700 million to AstraZeneca when it was built from scratch yeah. is a massive victory. Yeah? I mean, it, it is... I know this... Well, well for price, the UK. For the UK it is. Yes. But, but this thing happens all the time in the States. Yes. Right, yeah. but but I think that it became this linchpin for UK biotech. Yeah, and I mean, how, how many biotechs are in Cambridge now? Oh, 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 what, at what level? I mean, it's. Uh, I mean, you... any any level where someone thinks they it's five would you, people. Would you take Abcam to be a biotech? Yes, yes. Abcam. Well, you've got Abcam, for example, um, which I think is probably the biggest one, and that's on a very simple concept of just yeah. marketing um, antibodies as reagents. But I mean, I think it sort of brought the idea that, well, life sciences as an industry can survive here, which, which attracts people, which um, helps tech transfer, which helps investors focus on the area. And I think that's it's all true. Kind of... It's true. You have to have a successful model. And I think that probably before that, the model that people had in their minds was British biotech, which was actually a dismal failure. Yeah. And CAT was not a dismal and failure. And CAT was not. So, I mean, CAT was successful. There was... You know whether or not you argue that the that the that they should have got more value out of it, uh, you can't take away from the fact that they did develop a very important drug in collaboration with BASF, and in the end taken forward further by Abbott. It was a tremendous achievement. Yes. Um, and in fact, they've continued and continue to provide the sort of biologics arm of of, of AstraZeneca, um, AstraZeneca yeah. Yeah. by their merging with Medimmune. I agree, and then and then you, you start a domain, uh, uh, Demant- Demantis, uh, Demantis, which was also sold. Demant- Demantis was sold to GSK. I mean, that was actually at the same time in two thousand and six as actually Cambridge Antibody was being sold to AstraZeneca. Right, it was a big and, year, and I think that in that case, um, the domain antibodies, um, you know, provided another shot on that particular goal. Yeah. I mean, do you, when, when I say that, it sounds yeah. difficult for you to maybe sound humble when I ask this question, but in, in a way, that's sort of like, you know, the, the grandfather of UK biotech is CAT, Domantis. These are companies that you're founded off your technology. Do you yeah. feel that way? Like, do you help sort of auger this industry here? Well, well I, I would say I feel more, more engaged with CAT because that was my first, uh, um, and, and I put my entire soul into that for seven years. Yeah. Um, and it was really started at the very beginning and taken through and it's ended up being great success. Uh, Demantis, I did, it was another set up by myself and Jeff Grigg and mm-hmm. actually a student from my, former student from my lab, Ian Tomlinson. Um, but actually Ian did most of the work for that. I told him I hadn't 
I could no longer do, I could no longer work those hours. And he said, that's fine, he would. But he, he basically um, really drove that company forward. With, with um, your sort of... With my support, I was, yeah. you know, I, I supported the beginning. I had arranged the investment with PepTech. Right. I got all of those things in because PepTech, because of the, they felt I'd been honest and straightforward with CAT, uh, they thought that they would like to invest in Dematis. And so they, um, you know, kindly, we got a fantastic investment of $20 million very early on, um, when the company was only about nine months old. Yeah, no, But it really helped us sort of set the thing up properly, because CAT, we'd only had £750,000 as a drawdown loan, and we were always starved of money, but Dematis, you could... People felt there was a bit of a future there because they'd got $20 million available and you could therefore afford to get a, a, C, a proper CEO yeah. and not try to... Poor old Dave Chisel had to learn yeah. everything on the job. Yeah. And then Bicycle was one of yours as well. Well, Bicycle, again, was, um, was another of mine, yes. Um, and that was, um, that was started in 2009, 2010, yeah. based on work in the, in the lab. Do you feel like um, so you're sort of in that way a serial entrepreneur? I'm a serial. I'm a serial entrepreneur, but actually, it's worth saying that uh, it's only it's. I think it's easier where you have made the inventions. So I wouldn't claim to be the kind of person who could take someone else's ideas forward and make them successful. My own ideas, I kind of knew the limitations of them um, I knew where I was going yeah. with them and therefore it's re- I've seen it more as a way of getting my ideas out rather than being a serial entrepreneur right. being an entrepreneur is just the way you have to do it if you want to see these things um, out there with patience it's sort of like I think you're saying if, if, if the ideas weren't valid you would not have been an entrepreneur but you knew the ideas were you, you, you wouldn't start a company just because you enjoy it with someone else's stuff it has to be your own technology Yes, I'm not saying I never will, but I'm just saying if I look at my record, it's been very much based on the things that I was involved with. Um, Either I invented myself or I was a co-inventor on them, and my lab usually had a significant involvement in it. So these are things that I thought were worth a go and um, could make a difference. And Bicycle, we're pretty excited about because I think that could be a, a, a completely new paradigm. I want to ask you about two, two things, sort of yeah. stepping away from, from Kat, but uh, one, um, becoming Master of Trinity. Yeah. And um, how did that come about? Why did you decide that was a position you wanted? Well, the Master and Trinity um, pretty much uh, occupies the position until the age of 70, or if they want, sometimes they want to go earlier. Mm-hmm. Um and uh, Martin Rees um, was stepping down. Each of the Master of Trinity have all been a bit different yeah. in their own way, and I think that's one of the strengths of being masters here. We don't have a standard model master. Um, so Martin Rees was an astronomer, and before that we had Martin Sen, who was in the humanities, economics, yeah. famine, etc. So it's always been very different. They've all had their different approaches, uh, just a different way of doing the job, a, a different kind of priorities. And so I think people thought, well, actually, let's ring the changes and uh, maybe Greg would be willing to do it. Um, 
it surprised me a bit because I am relatively outspoken. Um, I had thought I'd probably annoyed people. Um, but for whatever reason, you know, I think there are enough people who weren't annoyed that yeah. they thought they it's good to have somebody who's good to have somebody who's always willing to ask questions. So like, yeah, we like you because you're always asking questions and putting people on the spot, and that's what we want about. Well, 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 fine. You know, I do ask questions yeah. and I do look into things, and I'm sure sometimes I'm a complete pain in the neck. Yeah. Uh, but that's what part they, That's part of me, and I can't help it. Yeah. So. Um, I also was a bit surprised because, you know, I'm reasonably right-wing. I'm, I'm not your natural choice for academics. I, I approve wholeheartedly of Mrs. Thatcher. Um, and there's probably very few fellows in this college who would approve of her. But nevertheless, they didn't seem to yeah. credit. They didn't hold that against me. Yeah. Or perhaps they did. But anyway, they, they other factors outweigh it. I think also they thought maybe it was worth having somebody who was... Um, um, knew something about business and and industry. Yeah, to go um, along with all the science. That's to go along with the science. Yeah. So that itself was the first appointment of someone who would know about those kind of things. So actually, you know, I'm sure every fellow w w would give a different reason as to why they, why in the end they wanted my name to go forward. Um, but I can only speculate at it. But what I do is I try to continue being myself yeah. um, and trying to sort of do the job conscientiously. And, and, and also you get, to, you get to live here, though. I get to live here. It's an incredible um, space. I mean, it's beautiful. It's, uh, yes. I, I don't know. You were living someplace else, obviously, before. Um, well, I lived, in, I lived in college. I was divorced and then I lived in college. Um, uh, um, but this had the advantage that my um, my girlfriend could actually live with me. Now I'm master because only the master was allowed to live in here with his family. Oh, so, I see. So in college, you can't live with anybody else. Oh, okay. Um, at all. So that's a nice. So you're not here at rambling around this big place by yourself. No, no, no. Yourself. So in fact, I could have my family here. So the master's allowed to to um, to it, to occupy this place with his family, but nobody else is anywhere else in the college. And then. Um, so at 70, you're going to have to look for a place to live. Well, I have my own house anyway. I lived in yeah. college, but that was largely because um, it was a lot more convenient than living in the property which I bought. Uh, so I would, I would go there for weekends. Yeah. Because I have a place out in the country. Okay, so then you're covered. So I'm, I'm covered. So I have a place um, it's out in Suffolk, and it has a moat around it. And I, I go there, and I love the place. You know, so It has a moat around it? It has a moat around it, uh, yes. Yeah. Um, the final thing I'll let you go is just the, the process of being knighted what that, what that means um, you know what that meant to you I mean I'm an American right so the, the yeah. concept of being knighted is very regal for us I think it's uh, well there's no particular story I mean I, I sort of uh, I just I mean, got suddenly told I was um, uh, you get a letter from the, the, the um, someone from the royal household I've actually forgotten what I've done with it I've got it somewhere um, which says that you um, you know, points out your name has been suggested as a uh, possible uh, to be as yeah. possible to be knighted, and um, and uh, um, essentially just wanted to confirm that you, this would find favour with you. So you don't get actually given that. So no one gets a chance to turn a knighthood down. You you know. Ah. So it's not. It just says 
if this were considered, would you, would you be willing yeah. to do it? Yeah. Which I think is a good way of doing that, actually. Yeah. Yeah. So anyone who says they turn the knighthood down actually is not, it's just, it's not true. It doesn't happen like that. They pulled themselves out of the running, is what they're They saying. pulled themselves out of the running. They yeah. pulled themselves out of the running. They indicated they wouldn't even like to be to have the offer made. I think when I say I like so, the story, what I mean is I like the ceremony. Is that ceremony? The ceremony was surprising. The ceremony I had been given um, a CBE uh, years earlier, which is um, uh, um, commander of the Order of the British Empire in the mid nineties. Was sort of work on science, and I received this knighthood for the same thing in ni- in two thousand and four or five. I've forgotten which year it was now. And um, uh, you. You, you, go, you go to the palace. Um, what I do remember as a knight, I had to. I didn't have to wait as long as I had to wait when I was made a CBE. And furthermore, um, they offered me a drink of water, um, whereas I didn't get any offer of a drink when I was waiting a much longer time as a CBE. But nevertheless, you you wait in line and you you go forward. The big surprise to me was um, the Queen, uh, who. At the back of my mind, I got the idea of this um, lady um, staring towards me with some broadsword and possibly <laughs> taking my head off. Um, but actually, she came forward very elegantly with this uh, rapier. Oh, okay. Like, yeah. one-handed. One-handed, yeah. well, one-handed thing, you see. And then I, I sort of you know, knelt, and I felt this thing go... Whoosh, onto my shoulder. It's quite a whack on your shoulder, you know. Yeah. And then I heard it go and come down the other side. And I hadn't expected that because, and I thought, it's a good job I didn't move because I heard it whistling past both ears. You mean you were going to stand? Well, I was, I could easily move. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But but she was so fast. And you were hit on one shoulder and then the other shoulder. Very, very, just, just, just like lightning. Yeah. And then, and I thought, well, it's a good job I didn't, I didn't jump up at that point. You lost an ear. I lost an ear, but you know, I can't actually remember what we said, but you have a few words and then you move on. You try to remember to step three paces back without turning your back on her and all that kind That's of thing. That's it, you have to back out of the room. You have, to, you have to back out of the ceremony. But it's every, each time I've done it, so, so I had the CBE uh, where in fact it was Prince Charles who did me and then the Queen when I became a knight. And um, each time I thought, they have these ceremonies and they make it, you know, a real occasion for every individual and for their families. They look after you. Yeah. You know, you have the, the orchestra playing. For the Queen, it must be just just like a, a treadmill. Another day. Yeah. Another day going yeah. through all of this. But she doesn't show it. She actually looks interested. And, you know, at her age, to stand up there and go through all of this, and again, to go through the National Anthem at the end and all the rest of it, it's just tremendous. So, actually, every time I've come into contact with the royal family, I've just, my, I probably years ago I was a Republican, um, but actually I'm no longer. Huh. I think I'm, it's fair to say I just, as far as the Queen is concerned, anyway, I'm not a Republican. I think she's terrific. Right. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll reserve, you know, and actually, there, there are some advantages to the royal family in the sense it stops other people getting their hands on the power, which yeah, is yeah, yeah. probably the main attribute of it and by the time they come into office uh, young or old they usually have a very finely developed sense of duty and you know that 
essentially they are there for the country. Yeah. Prince Charles Winnie, right? He was in this college, yes. Yeah, yeah. Yes, I've only met him a couple of times since, um, but uh, we hope to get him here this year because it's be 50 years after he um, came up to the college. Wow. And so we're hoping we can entice him back. And um, But he's got a so, very busy schedule. Um, that's all I had. I want to thank you for okay. having me into the Master's Quarters. It's been well, great. You're welcome. All right, that is it. First Rounders Podcast with Greg Winter. Uh, thank you, Sir Greg, for having me into your residence and for being such a gracious host. I um, very much appreciated the time and the talk. So what else? Thanks to the Midwest Quiet for use of their music in this podcast. If you have complaints, criticism, comments, if you'd like to send us a picture of your cat, which people sometimes do on Twitter, if you'd like to tell us what you had for lunch, which people sometimes do on Twitter, you can find us on Twitter. And our handle is at Nature Biotech. Um, we use that to talk about anything, the journal, the blog, the podcast, whatever else. So beyond that, no, that's it. That's all the housekeeping I have. Thank you for listening, and goodbye. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Traffic jams, tailgating, pile-ups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.